Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our Rembaum Institute series, The Poetry of Prayer, with Rabbi Joel Rembaum. We are on the bottom of page 68. I want to move quickly through this because there's still something very interesting here. Because uh, I want to, I want to finish the preliminaries and start getting into the uh, the central part of the service, which is very interesting. Um, call your attention to the fact that um, if you look in the bottom paragraph, the bottom of page sixty-eight, we are before Shochenad, the page before Shochenad. Ah, okay. Every bone in my body cries out, Adonai, who is like you. All right. That's the English translation. And then it begins, Mi Yidmelach, Mi Yishvelach, Mi Yorachlach. And here, if you look in the, uh, in the English, who resembles you? Who is equal to you? Who compares to you? Okay. Like again, this emphasis, this re- repetition for purposes of emphasis. But here too, it's got that rhythmic thing. Mi yid, listen to Hebrew. Mi yidmelach, umi yishvelach, umi yarochlach. Right? Mi begins with me, ends with lach. There's, there's rhythm. There is rhyme. It's a, it's a mini poem. Okay. Now the next line. Okay. The next line. Where do you know that from? Beginning with the Amidah. The Amidah. Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanorah el elyon gomel chasadim tovim, right? Etc. It's a trope. Except look how it concludes. All right? Then it ends. El elyon konei shamayim va'aretz who's the creator of heaven and earth. All right? That is also used in other liturgy. In fact, it's attached to the whole, it's one whole line uh, in a certain prayer that some of us may be familiar with. Okay? All right, we're on, this is page 68 in the Machzor. All right, so anyway, do you know what, anybody know? I'll, I'll repeat the whole thing, okay? I'll repeat the whole thing here. So it says, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor ha'na'ora el elyon kone shamayim va'aretz. Where is that? All right, I'll tell you. Magena vote, Friday night. Oh. Repetition of the Amida after the quiet Amida. Friday night, okay? You say Vayachul Hashemaim Vaharitz, and then Magen Avot Bidvaro, Machayev Etim Bemaharo, Ha'el Hagadol, etc., etc. But it begins. You have the whole thing. These are tropes, right? And I, I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm a, I don't know 
it, I think it makes sense that it, it's probably originally associated mm-hmm. with Buddha because mm-hmm. the Talmud already I think I mentioned once before. Right? Let's. What does that mean? The great God, El Hagadol, Hagibor. The I'm sorry, El the God, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanora. The great, the mighty, and the awesome. Three descriptives of God. Okay, it's from the Book of Deuteronomy, and if you remember. There was a guy in Shul, in the synagogue, in Eretz Yisrael, in the third century, the common era, or the fourth century, who added on additional descriptive words. And Rabbi Hanina got up and said, shut up! What do you mean? You're adding on descriptive words. And the guy says, what's wrong with adding on descriptive words? It says already, Right? The great, the mighty, the awesome. Why can't I add on a few more? Because two things. Number one, the only reason why we say these descriptive words is because God told us to. It's in the, it's in the Torah. So it's biblically based. The word of God told us to say this. Okay? So we can say those because really we shouldn't say any descriptive words of God. Because as soon as you stop, you are desecrating God's name. Why? Only there you're stopping? How can you give a limit to the qualities of God who is infinite? So therefore, you can only say these three. All right? Well, what about the 13? No, hold on. No, that's a question. No, that's divine attributes of compassion. Okay, that's one, that's it. One can say that's in the Bible, right? Because the words are taken from the Torah. So again, and God said that explicitly. But here's the thing. As we have seen in much of this liturgy, we've seen lists of descriptives that are eight, nine, ten, and we're going to see one right now. Well, we, there, I didn't even mention it. We just had one a few lines before this in the, in the other paragraph. Well, whole eight, eight descriptives and we've seen 15 and we're going to see 16. So clearly Rabbi Hanina's point fell into disuse and these mystical traditions that did exactly what Rabbi Hanina said you shouldn't do. Keep piling on and piling on, but piling on and piling on. Those are the same people who have this descriptive uh, depiction of God's huge body. Right? We talked about this. God's arm that's 10,000, 10 million parsangs long and his leg is 20 million parsangs long and so forth and so on. So the whole point was it's okay because we are using exaggerated language to describe a deity. Uh, uh, we do this intentionally knowing that we cannot fully describe, but we want to make sure that the way we do describe is totally different from how we describe the normal physical world. Because God is immense. And, you know, I think Rabbi Hanina would rather say God is infinite, greater than immense, okay? 
So I, so I, so that's what's going on. But anyway, here, this is kosher. According to Rabbi Chanina, this is kosher. Mm-hmm. Okay, question or comment. I have, I have Taibel and Bert. <laughs> um, Rabbi, I never really thought about this before. And maybe it's because I don't make it to services early enough, but in the question form, who is the audience for the question in the mind? Uh, who do you think of the mind, the minds who put these prayers together? Is it the other people praying alongside who, who are m- meant to be hearing the question or at some level do they think God? It's, it's rhetorical. It's rhetorical. I mean, who can come? It's like you, you know, you say to somebody, who can compare to your intelligence? Who, who, you know, we use these all the time as a means of expressing our, our awe, right? Echad miyodea. Who knows what? All right. So there, but there you have these answers, right? Then on the Pesach time, right? But that, but these really are intended to be because, because they're aimed at God, who is like you, God, right? It's a rhetorical question, which means nobody's like you. That's what they are. They're rhetorical questions, not directed at any human being. Okay. Because the lach, right? Which is another variation of lacha to you, who was like you, God. Okay. Bert. Uh, uh, Rabbi Eli Kofner of Hadar has an interesting take. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this is classical. On Hael Hagadol Hagibor Vahanara comes, you mentioned Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 17, right? It says, God great. And what does it cite right after that? Who shows no favor and takes no bribe, who does justice for the orphan and the widow and loves a stranger providing him with food and clothing. Yeah. So this is referring or directing towards the ethical, loving part of God. Right. Okay. This is, as opposed to the fearful. Right. Exactly. Right. But but it says the Hanorah, which is awesome. Okay. Awesome. But it, right, and then it says it's which okay. one? It can go anywhere you yeah. want. They're all. It's all true. If, if I'm speaking, you know, from a perspective of someone who has this kind of very, I won't almost say, you know, you can feel their their faith, you know, very rich. They're, they don't have the questions some of us may have. They're not as skeptical as we, right? So all of these things come together. All of these attributes, be they attributes. What is this? Okay, oh, that are be these attributes that are Paul physical, or, you know, quasi-physical, or be they attributes that are ethical. I was going to ask who this person is. Yes. Somebody's talking. Okay, so please don't talk among yourselves. Um, okay, Hello. all right, you got it. The, uh, Bert, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, it's, you, can it's, it, you can use it to deal with God who makes miracles. Right. You can use it for God who's ethical. Because the whole point that these traditions are trying to convey is... And language is all we have. We're human beings. So we try and approximate it. We're only humans, but we observe all these manifestations 
you know, today you could say, I mean, I like to talk science. I think I said this once before. So I see divine power, you know, of Yehuda Halevi, the great Yehuda Halevi, 12th century Spain, right? Who at the end of his life tried to get to Israel and there's a debate whether he made it or not. Anyhow, but he says, you want to see a miracle? Okay. You can look at the stars, right? Everybody looks at the stars. Awesome. Look what God has done. You know what Halevi says? Look at the ant, A-N-T. Look at the honeybee. How are these things? What? An ant. They build colonies, right? The bee makes hives, beautiful hives, symmetrical hives, and wonderful honey. And they can bite you to boot. And so can ants, right? That's a miracle. And where do you have to look for it? In the ground. It's an earthbound miracle. And he's right. Look at your own body. Yeah, well, that's it. Like your heartbeats. Asher Yatsar, the blessing we say. We talked about this from the outset, right? When you come from the bathroom. You know, we got all the stuff inside of us. Thank God it works. Right? So the point is, that's exactly the point. You don't have to look into the heavens. You don't have to think about a mystical. You can't. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't. But, you know, you can see, you can find divine emanation of power and, 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 and might and, and goodness and whatever. And, and sometimes anger, chaos, you know, and, and we're going to see in a minute that that all the tradition lays all of that at God's feet, right? You can't have a God of good and evil, right? You can't have a God of good over here and a God of evil over here. We don't have a devil the king of the underworld, the enemy of God. We don't have any. Nobody can survive divine power, right? So so who's at fault? So who, who created all this stuff? Everything lies at God's feet. And God's, as we say, has got thick skin. So, you, you know, <laughs> that's a metaphor. And infinite patience. Yes. With all this. right, moving on. So, all right. So, so you see, then you have this, 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 this selection from the Amidah. Okay. And then there's another Psalm mentioned because it's, it's appropriate. We're leading. Remember, this is still the conclusion to all of the Psalms that we have been reading. That's where we are. All right. Now turn to page 69. All right. Now we have this passage which as you can see here is divided up into different elements. So here we begin Ha'el Zecha, the God in the might of the power of your might. Hagadol the great with the glory of your name. Hagibor, the mighty one, Lanetzah forever, the Hanorah and the awesome one in your miracles, in your wonders, okay? So here, look what it's doing. Ha'el, ha'gadol, ha'gibor, v'hanorah. It's using it again. But now it has broken it apart and giving a little interpretation for each one. So ale relates to power, and it does. There's a saying in Hebrew, yesh la'el, it's in biblical. Yesh la'el yadav. His hand has power in it. 
not referring to God. So ale can be a statement of power. And the fact, the fact is, you see this also in, in the pagan literature uh, from the Canaanite faith, where ale, the great god El, was power. So ale is associated with power, okay? Hagadol, with the greatness, right? Before the glory of your name. Here we have the name again. Remember, we talked about that that the essence of God is wrapped up in the divine name, and there's power in that. And this this, this something that transmits down the generations, down the centuries, that there's amazing power if you can master the name of God. Okay? what? Who is the guy who founded Hasidus, Hasidut, the Hasidic movement? The Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov. The master of the good name. It means he knew incantations built around the name of God that he could use to heal, to help people. That's what that means. Okay. All right. Hold on, Bert, just a second. All right. Let me just finish this up. All right. Hagibor, the mighty one. Lanetzach, forever. Now, this is a, the power is Endless, right? You don't have to re, you don't have to plug it in, right? The battery goes on and on forever. And finally, no rabba, no rotecha. Awesome in your wonders, your miracles. Okay. So now let me call your attention to something on Pesach, Shavuot and Sukkot. Where does the cantor begin the davening? Right? Normally, a lay person or a subcantor will do Suke de Zimra, write all the Psalms and everything leading up to this point. And at this point, the cantor takes over. Or there's a shift. Somebody else, you hear a different voice. Okay. And there's a, there are special melodies for the different sections here. I'll explain what I'm talking about with different in just a minute. So, where do you begin on holidays? The the conclusion. Anybody know? Ha'el. Ha'el betatsumot uzecha ha'gadol b'chvod shemecha ha'gibor lenetzach and I'm not going to become a chazan, so don't worry. Okay, that's how you begin this part of the service on holidays, on the three pilgrimage holidays, or whether it's Shabbat or not. That's how you begin. All right. Now, is this not the beginning of uh, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur? Also? No. Where do we begin? It's my next question. Where do you begin on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? Look in your Matzor. Where is it? Huh? Hamelech. 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 That's why I'm not going to be a cousin also. Okay. All right. He's the king. Now, why do you sing about God as king on the high holidays? You've got all those 
prayer is the Malchiot prayers. Right, exactly. I have a whole part of Musa called Malchiot dealing with kingship. And and you, instead of saying Ha'el HaKadosh, mm-hmm. at the end of the Amidah, what do we say? HaMelech HaKadosh. HaMelech HaKadosh. You, take, you kick out Ale and you put in Melech. Ooh, my goodness. Why Melech? Two reasons. God created the world, so he's Melech HaOlam. And Rosh Hashanah, Hayom Harat Olam, this is the day the world was conceived. Well, isn't that for emphasis? You start with Hamelech on the high holidays? Yes. End with Hamelech. Yes, Hamelech. It's emphasis. Exactly. But, but the first one is because God is Melech, you know, who creates. But also, Melech is the chief justice. He is the, he is the court of appeals. So therefore, you want to remind us that we are now undergoing a period of judgment. And that's why you say HaMelech HaKadosh instead of Ayel HaKadosh also. All right, so for those two reasons, creator, judge. Remember, Din, the attribute of justice, emerges strong during the 10 days of penitence. And our job is to soften it by reminding God that he's also the Rahum, the comforter. That's the reason that several prayers prayers during the 10 days are changed to Hamelech. Yes, exactly. Right. So that's that's why. So And on Shabbat, where do you begin? The next line. Right. That's for Shabbos. Why is that for Shabbos? Why do you think? It's not, it's not totally clear, but I think that there's a, the message is here. Because number one, you're not celebrating any, um, miracles of salvation, right? Which would be the, the Nora, the Norotecha that's referred to with Ha'el. On the holidays, you're celebrating this, the, you're celebrating God's redemption from Egypt. So El Nora, right? The, the awesome God. Eternity is also about time. What? Eternity is about time. It's foreverness. Yes. Eternity, it's all time. And Shabbat is supposed to be a taste of eternity. Yeah, but it's not, but we don't do that. This is Shochenad Umarom, Shochenad Marom Vekadoho Shemaho. We don't say. English is he inhabits eternity. At least I'm reading the English. Maybe I'm not, I don't understand Hebrew. No, it says Shochen Ad. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. It means, yeah, you, you, I, I see. Forever. Yeah, he, yeah. The foreverness, don't, didn't the sages say that Shabbat is supposed to be a taste of? Of, of, well, it's a taste of the world to come. Right. right? Yeah, but God, but yeah, you celebrate God's foreverness. I, I didn't really, I didn't understand. So I just finished reading the Sabbath by A.J. Heschel, so I'm too close. Oh, more than that, though. But it, but listen, he's shochem, means he's dwelling, mm-hmm. right? What do you when you go inside your dwelling? What do you do that you? How is going into your dwelling different from being outside? What do you do outside your dwelling? You work, right? Mm-hmm. You work. You don't work in your house. I mean, if you work out of your house, uh, yes. Yeah, look today this is before COVID. Today, Today, because of <laughs> COVID work culture, 
people work at home. Okay. But normally, even if you did in the, in those days, you, in the backyard, you had a hut, right? Or you, if you were a craftsperson, you didn't do your stitching. You did it elsewhere. So outside is where you work. On Shabbat, you were shochen. You come into your dwelling. Okay. And, and, and where is God's dwelling? Marom. Right, Marom in the heights. Mm-hmm. So God lives in that part of Los Angeles called Divine Heights. You ever heard of Boyle Heights? <laughs> well, this is the Divine Heights. So are you saying this translation is that it? it... Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Oh, okay. Finding, I'm just trying. I see Tybo. I see your hand. I'm trying to give us an insight. This is my crazy thing. Okay. Um, remember, we're talking about finding meaning, the words that have meaning for us or that make things, expressions within our tradition more meaningful. So you can think something else. So, Bert, you want to emphasize eternity? I'll be just <laughs> the English does. That was the only reason I mentioned. No, 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 I'm saying it's okay. Yeah. It's okay, right? So it's fine. And the na- again, Shemo, the name, right? Mm-hmm. The name, the power of the name, you know? But it's it's the, that nameless is now being shochen, right? So that this 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 power of the name is in the is in his dwelling. Now remember Deuteronomy. We talked about this that the name is seen as the essence of God. So now the name and and what is the temple, right? The temple would be where God dwells. So God on Shabbos, according to this, and that's where God is now all the time because there is no temple, resides, according to one tradition, in the temple up top, the supreme temple. So God is resting in his temple after having created the world, which is an amazing, awesome thing. He's not doing awesome things. He's resting. So it's for Shabbos. Okay. So again, the holidays, the, the miraculous events of salvation, right? So we do Ha'el. Hamelech, the king, judge, creator for the high holidays. And the person dwelling in his abode, as we are supposed to do, is on Shabbos. So that's why those three, to my mind, and just reading, I mean, other commentators as well, uh, that's why they're there. But that's why it's three different beginnings for this part of the service. Okay, Tybal. Um, I, I would think that the one of an even bigger distinction between dwelling in one's house in terms of work is about being protected, that that one's home is supposed to be a place of respite and protection. And that's also a link to God. I mean, it's an, I mean, later, a mezuzot or much later, but isn't that. Careful. Depends upon who, just as an aside. Uh, Rambam, Rambam, for example, does, you know, he comments on why, you put up the mezuzah. You know what he says? It's not for protection. God doesn't need a, a, doesn't 
operate that way, he says. He doesn't like magic. But rather, the, it reminds you that there's Torah in your house. That you in your house, you have to, you don't just go to shul uh, to do Torah. And you just don't go, don't go in yeshiva to do Torah. That, you, that Torah's got to re- govern your home as well. All right, so I'm just, that's an observation. But anyway, so you're saying then is that God, I'm just curious though, how does that, um, how, how would you explain that it is God in God's dwelling, which doesn't need any protection, whereas um, we in our homes, we like to believe, as you're saying, that when we go into our home on Shabbos, we should feel God's protection. But then that means that God's working. You understand what I'm saying? God's protecting us. So it to me, I'm just concerned. I mean, I think it's, I like the concept that the home but, is a protection. Well, maybe for God isn't work because isn't God the one that doesn't slumber and doesn't sleep? Right. No, I agree. Absolutely. All I'm talking about is the, is the emphasis of what is, what is Shabbat supposed to mean for us? So I would say, maybe let me, let's take a, a little variation on your theme. God goes into God's home with his mind at ease that the world that he has created is a beautiful place. And so we on Shabbat, Regard, you know, given whatever theology we have, should go into our homes and make it and make it feel like a place where we can be at ease and and not concerned and not worried. All right. So I, I would I would think that perhaps, you know, I mean, but then you can make the point that the divine protection never ends. That's part of how the universe is supposed to operate. But then I, I see your hand, Barbara. But now I'm going to throw a little, just throw out a little um, uh, monkey wrench into our desire, our, our feeling. And I relate exactly, title to what you're saying. You know, when I walk into my home, I say, ah, I'm home. And that's what we should feel, especially on Shabbos. So with that, on that point, I agree with you 100%. But here's the kicker. Do you know very often when the Nazis would decide to make a putsch into the Jewish community? On holidays, Yom Kippur, Pesach, they dafka would wreak havoc in the Jewish communities on the holy days because their goal was to turn the Jews' world upside down and create ultimate chaos for the Jews. And some, some people who interpret, you know, who read the sources about the Holocaust will say it wasn't just accident. It was intentional. So it's as if they're taking the whole concept of the peace and sanctity of the home. And this is when they would go into people's homes and take them out, you know, and send them off to the camps. Many, very often it was on holy days. So just a thought. Okay. That's the evil of the Nazi. All right. Barbara Brieger has a question. Uh, yeah, the the elder Rabbi White, not your classmate, Rabbi White, his father, taught me when I was in Sunday school a zillion years ago. Yeah, 
that Shabbat was the most significant holiday that we have. Yes. Most significant day, more so than Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, uh, and the, because it had to be repeated every single week, even though that sounds like it's not so significant. But the fact that it needed to be repeated every week to remind us that, that it existed basically is the way I took it away from what he said. Yes, I agree. We I were mean, in his minuscule office. You should have seen what he had for an office back in those days. I, no, I, I was there. <laughs> Julian White? No. Oh, Saul, Saul White. White. Your classmate's oh, father. Right. Okay, I understand. I didn't know which White you were talking about. Okay. I didn't know Julian White when I was a child. Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> right, anybody else? Because uh, Bert, okay. Tybal, you're raising your hand again. Sorry, uh, two quick translation questions. Wait, 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 Bert. Oh, Bert, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bert. Yeah, Bert. Two, two quick translation questions. Marum Vikadosh Shamo, but the English translation in uh, uh, the Siddur doesn't say the word, doesn't say his name. At least the translation. I have the Sim Shalom, the original one. But it says it here. Let me see this. You, cor- you correctly oh, no, translate. Here. No, no. Sovereign, enthroned on high, dwelling forever, exalted and holy is your name. Name, name. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm reading, I guess the earlier, the earlier one. Uh, uh, yeah, right. The advantage to the later, to the Leif Shalem series mm-hmm. is they return to a more literal reading oh. of the text. The other question I have is about the word kavod. Yeah. Uh, are you happy with the translation glory? Oh, he no. sounds very Christian to me. It's, yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a bad translation. Okay. It's a complex, the, the word kavod actually is very complex because kavod is associated with divine power. Um, it, it, it's, isn't it also with heaviness and significance? Hey, yeah, significance. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't like glory. In fact, who was I reading recently? I said you shouldn't use that word. Because the glory, the kavod is seen as a source out of, as a place out of which God's words came. Okay. So it's not glory. It, it's serious power. English is a Christian language. I mean, having grown up in yeah, Christian yeah, country, right. and it sounds very, very Christian to me. Glory, glory, glory. Yeah. I just think of a church. Holy, 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 but that's another thing. All right, Tybal again. Go ahead, Tybal. Um, just fast, just to say that what you were talking about, the Nazis in the time of the Shoah. Yeah. Well, that notion, for example, the bus bombings on bus 18, 18 was picked on purpose. Say that again, that what? The bus bombings for the bus line 18, then the line number 18 was picked on purpose because it's a symbol to Jews. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Gotcha. That's very interesting. Yeah, could be. Could be. Oh, no. Having lost a relative in one of those big bus bombings, there's no question it was picked on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so then now moving on. So we talk about, again, a look, look on your page. If you look at on page 69, uh, 
in the speech of the upright, you are exalted. All right. And in the words of the righteous, you are blessed. In the language of the devoted, you are sanctified. And in the midst of your holy congregation, you are praised. Okay. So you can see here a whole series of, of, of it's again another mini poem. So you see, you have tit varech, tit kadesh, tit halel. Sound familiar. Yit barach, the yishtabach, the yit paar, the yit roman, the yit nasei, the yit halel, the yit da A trope. Similar to the words of Kaddish. I'm not saying this is taken from the Kaddish, but it's this form of the reflexive with the, with the top in it. Okay, that double T sound. Okay, you see it? Oh, there's Titro Mom, actually, right? There's four of them. No, it's four of them. But now look, the line up above, it talks about, as it's, as it's written, Okay, let the, uh, the, the righteous uh, sing about God and the ones who are Yashar, who are straight and righteous, uh, provide uh, beautiful music. Um, that's my translation. But you have Tzadikim Yesharim, and then in the little poem, Yesharim Tzadikim, picking up on the line before, playing off of it poetically. This is all done intentionally, right? And again, these rhythms, that this is what you've got to look for. And I'm glad to hear in the English translation, you can, if you look at it, in the speech, in the words, in the language, in the midst, etc., right? So the, the English is even trying to pick up that kind of poetic rhythm, okay? So then it goes on, for, you know, the, now it's, it's switching, f- focusing specifically on the, on, on, on your people, the house of Israel, glorifying, et cetera, et cetera. And here we go. The middle, the fourth line in the Hebrew and the fourth line in the English. I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words that one way or another say praise. There you got another one of those. And in the English, extolling, exalting, adding. Well, no, here, hold on, no. Well, you know, here they, 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 they abbreviated it in the English. But the Hebrew, this again, this repeating, lahodot, lahalel, lishabeach, lafa'er, leromeim, lahader, levarech, leale, ulkales. That's one of those things again. And then you have yishtabach, which we studied last time, wrapping it up. So we finally now have completed the concluding, uh, the, the, the second frame for the Psalms used on the holy days, Shabbat holidays, including the high holidays, with the different specific, with the different emphases on, in the introductions on this page, they're the introductions to the conclusion that we just talked about a moment ago, the three different ones. Okay. Now we are going to move on. We have a Chatzikadish divider. 
And now we're going to begin the central part of the Shacharit service. As we're going to move to the um, first blessing before the Shema. Remember, two blessings before the Shema in the morning, one blessing after, and in the evening, two blessings before and two blessings after, because you add Hashkivenu at night. Okay, so you have the call to prayer, the Baruch Hu, okay? And then again, here too, I think we met, we talked about this, right? Lo Baruch means we say to praise, it, that, that's okay, but it also means to gift. And remember I mentioned that there is a, in the Hebrew, in a, in a, uh, uh, biblical lexicon, very important one, that word means to give a gift. Okay. So we give, we, we give God a gift by praise, by blessing him. Okay. Then that's why they say to praise, but that's a gift that we're giving God. Okay. So the call to prayer by the leader of the service, Barkuat Adonaiham Vorach, and then Baruch Adonaiham Vorach Leolam Ba'ed, and then the repeater says that again. I mean, the, the, the leader. As everybody knows, those are the same ways, same thing we say when you have an aliyah to the Torah. Okay. So I have the old Sim Shalom and the English translation is praise be the Lord's source of blessing. As if the blessing is coming from God and not for us. I'm just reading if it's the original Sim Shalom. Here it says praise Adonai to whom all prayer is directed. I know that different. That's different from what's in the older Sim Shalom. I'm wondering your take on that. This is better. We are gifting him. We're sending him a gift, right? So the Hebrew, the Hebrew does say to send a gift. It's yeah, not- well, it does. He is mivorach means he is the recipient of a bracha. Ah, right. That's the the um, not that's the passive form. The, the the older Sim Shalom is more interpretive. Yes. Yes. That's, that's a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb. Okay. So here we go. This is a critical, crucial pl- prayer. All right. And for this one, I have to reach over here and grab my handy dandy little Jewish Publication Society pocket Bible. Ha ha ha. All right. This is a good one. It's got Hebrew and English. But here, too, I must say there's, you know, this this was written in the 60s. It's a good translation. But as is the case with every translation, there are many people, biblical scholars whom I've studied and, and Talmudic scholars whom I've studied uh, in their writings who will say that citations are from this book, right? The Tanakh, the JPS Tanakh. Jewish Publication Society Bible. But I will take, I will accept for the emendations of the translation that I make, says the author of the article. Okay. Because there are instances where, you know, new, new interpretations. I'm not just talking about midrashic interpretations here, serious linguistic interpretations based upon new understandings of how ancient Semitic languages worked, right? Shed light on the Hebrew, which is an ancient Semitic language, especially this book. 
So um, sometimes they're going to disagree, but it's a good one. All right. So let's look at this blessing. Baruch Olam. All right. No need to explain that. Now, Yotzer Or, he fashions light. Right, Yotzer is not the same as Bara, which is the next one. Remember when God creates in the second chapter of Genesis, he is Yotzer Ha'adam. He takes and he forms and shapes the human being out of the dust of the earth, the moistened dust. Okay. A Yotzer in Hebrew mean, can mean also a, uh, someone who works with clay, an artisan, a potter, right? Your Yotzer. So that really, it's a very physical, in Genesis 2, it's a very anthropomorphic word. Okay. In that usage is really amazing because you get a sense of these invisible hands picking up a glob of this moistened dust and shaping it. And then he goes, poof. And suddenly this thing becomes a human being. Very physical, right? So that's, but here light, it's very interesting. It's not used. It doesn't say, uh, it, it doesn't say create in the Torah. It says, Vayomer Elohim Yehior. God said, let there be light. And there was light. It does not tell us how that happened. There's no verb saying that then I, that it just the word came out and the light went on. It's like that, you know, some of these homes, they have the thing you walk in a room, you go and the lights go on. I don't have that, you know, but you know, you know I'm talking about ever seeing these things. You know, people used to show them off. I think they passed out of existence because they probably broke down too much. You know, frequently. I don't know. All right. Anyway. So Yotzer Or, the one who who shapes, who well, let's say creates light, Uvore Choshech. Now this is really interesting. Bore again is that verb that only is used with respect to divine creative activity. Beit Resh Aleph, only divine creative activity. And you can open up a concordance and look at every. It's fifty sometimes in the Bible, if I'm not mistaken. Every one of them talks about God in one way or another. Okay? <clears throat> and by the way, it's very interesting. In the first chapter of Genesis, when the human being is created, in verse 27, it says, Vayivra Elohim et Adam b'tzalmo, b'tzalom Elohim bara oto, zachar nukeveah bara otam. The word bara is, occurs three times in the ver in the line that speaks about the creation of human beings in the first chapter of Genesis. <clears throat> it's like saying this is the peak of divine creation. Three times in one sentence. It's the only time it appears that way in the whole Bible. The only time. Okay? And by the way, interestingly, in the second chapter of Genesis, that creation account the verb bara does not appear once. It was not apparently not in the vocabulary of the source of that particular account. It appears it appears six times in the first creation account, zero times in the second creation. Something for you to chew on and to lose sleep over tonight 
So hopefully you'll be able to sleep in a little bit tomorrow. Okay, so it says, but here, God is the creator, Borei, Hoshech, of darkness, the creator of darkness. Wow, think about that. Darkness is not simply the absence of light here. Darkness is an entity. All right. That's now, did they know of dark matter back then and dark energy that today's astronomers talk about? I don't think so, but who knows? Don't quote me on that. But isn't it interesting? Darkness. But there's a reason here. This is not the original quote, is it? Is that what you're going to? So far, so far, it's the original quote. Oh, they, okay. So far. Yes, word for word. Ose Shalom, right? He is the maker of Shalom. What is Shalom? We always say peace. That's okay, but it's more. Unity. Huh? Unity. Unity, you said? Unity, yeah, together. Uh, Completeness. 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 Yes, completeness. It can mean uh, order. Uh, it can mean um, harmony. Okay, it has many levels of meaning. So peace is not a good single translation. No. And then the last one, and here you go, Uvorei at Hakol. And again, Borei, creator of all things. All right. Okay, that's the blessing. So Borei is used for in the in the uh, second second part. Okay, Yotzer or Uvorei Choshev, Oseh Shalom Uvorei at Hakol. That's like there is a little poetic structure there. Okay, you got two parts to each one. The second part complementing the first part, right? On the one hand, you have. But you can see already so there's a pattern here, right? It says light, darkness, okay, harmony, and everything. Except the problem with that is you'd expect something negative or scary like darkness at the end. And it says everything. Now, I see your hand. Let me finish my thought and I'll get back to you, okay? All right. Now I'm going to read to you. You can write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45, 7. I'm going to begin actually with the verse 6, but the important verse is verse 7. So here's verse 6. Laman yedu mimizrach shemesh umima arava, so that they shall know from the Shining of the sun until its decline. Ki efes biladi. There is nothing without me. There is nothing. I am responsible for everything. And he says, Ani Adonai ve'enot. I am Adonai and there is no other. Period. And who is God? What does God do? Now listen carefully. Follow along in the Sidur. Yotzer or... What does Ra, Reshayan mean? Evil, bad. It can mean evil, it can mean woe, it can mean chaos. It's a negative. 
it parallels darkness, right? So on the beginning phrases, Yotzer, light, Oseh, shalom. And it's interesting, Borei, the word that specifically defines God's creative activity is associated with something negative. Now, isn't that interesting? Dafka. I would have reversed it, right? I am Bore Shalom, the Yotzer Or. I am a Bore, what's the second one? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Ani Bore Or and Yotzer Choshef. Bore Shalom and Osera. All right? No. The specific word of God's creation is associated with the negative. You know, so let's consider two things. One, what is the, what is it saying? It's, it's, it's completing what the previous verse said. I am responsible for anything and everything that exists in the universe. There's no other gods. Okay. And this is the dilemma of the monotheist. Is it not? You can't point to the bad God, right? You can't, there's no dark side here. It's only the force, only the force. So you can't associate bad stuff with the dark side. That's what God is saying. It's all me. There's no other gods. I am the sum total of everything, every power of which you can conceive. And that's why this is, there is a, you can almost make these into what's called a, a, a uh, merism. A merism means from A to Z. All right. Something that is, from here to there, air, it, it, it's almost as if I create everything from light into darkness and things that are harmonious into chaos. But everything and everything in between. Okay. And the second point is that it's, it's just, and I, I have to think that the use of Bore here is totally intentional to, to make sure that nobody has any doubts about it. That Dotka, my God saying, my unique power went into the creation of these things. It's also as if he's rubbing, he's rubbing this in your face and saying, I'm responsible for evil. Are you proud of it? No, but I am. I did it anyway. Why? You can't understand. So I'm not even going to try to tell you. All right. So first of all, I think we had Tybal and then Anita. No, my hand wasn't up. I think it was just AJ. Okay. All right, AJ, go ahead. Uh, hi, Rabbi. Um, going back to the darkness, and you were talking about Ra being negative, and you, know, you implied that darkness also is negative. Is there, an, is there a sense in that term, Hoshef, that this is um, emptiness or... A, a lack of something, or is this really like um, human beings when in real darkness, not figuratively speaking, but uh, physically speaking, uh, we can't see, and we fear that there's something out there, the unknown. So, but there's, but there's something there. Is it, is it something or is it nothing? Like I said before, I think in the biblical understanding, and it may have been the same going down through decades, through centuries, it was a something. 
That's why it was I, a something, not a nothing. Yeah. In other words, it's not a, it's not a it's not a vacuum. Okay. That, that's my question. Thank you. I think that's I think that's what it is. Yeah. But the prayer was written, as you said, in the Ghanic period, which was way later, and the rabbis intentionally changed it, right? Yes, they did because they didn't want you to have. Um, they wanted you not to be confused when you say the prayers, right? It, it was something it didn't it didn't register it didn't register in your ear harmoniously, right? It's so they they they, they neutralized that word. They neutralized it, yeah, because Ra was always negative. There's no question about that. Okay. But, I've read that this had something to do with uh making a statement against dualism and Zoroastrianism. Yeah, no, that's so again, this is second Isaiah speaking. He lived around the um No, I meant the changes that the rabbis made had to do with No, 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 no. Just let's start with Isaiah. He was I think uh reacting against the dualism associated with Persian religion, okay? Um, because they believed in a God of light and a dark. In fact, they make the same dichotomies, light and darkness and good and evil, which carry down the line, by the way, because you can see that even you can find that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the sons of light versus the sons of darkness. And that's why if you've been to Jerusalem, and you see the dead when you go to the Dead Sea Museum. I mean, the 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 the, the museum of the the book the the what's it called? Oh, there's a special name for it. You know, you know, what I'm talking about by the by the museum in Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock. Oh, I'm sorry, the the dome, the circular museum. Yeah, that's right. It's a dome with an obelisk next to it. Yeah. And the dome is white, and the obelisk is black. Not the Dome of the Rock. The rock. The, the something of the Shrine of the Book. The shrine of the book next to the museum in Jerusalem. And it was built that way because it to, to represent the, the, the opposition of light and darkness. And they used a piece of dark stone, a substance to read, you know, I mean, of course, this is representational, but still, you know, it was, it, it was, that was not undone. I think they appreciated that that was, that's how they believed. And so the point was he was making a very strong statement. That there are not two, four, there's no duality, right? He did that. The rabbis were responding. It's possible to the same thing, you know, because there was dualism when the rabbis existed, a different kind, and uh, it also had a diff, like a differentiation between the two. And you still, and you had the sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, they continued to be around for a long time. After the scrolls were written, they then they were numbered, scattered, you know, that, that kind of thinking. So I gather, I think they were reacting in their own way, but they also believed that the prayers should not be uh, literature or words that cause people to be disturbed. Think about the prayers as opposed to the Psalms. You don't have prayers that argue with God. Psalms do. And you have some Psalms, a couple, in Psuche de Zimra, which talk about the tzaddik, I mean, thinking of Psalm 34, which says, it is evil, the tzaddik experiences evil. 
It's a given. It says that. Okay. That is a kind of a challenge to God. Why is it that the tzaddik of all people suffers from evil? All right. So, and it's a subtle one, but generally, but there are other Psalms I call who's quote Psalm 22. I don't, you know, Eli, Eli, Lama, Azabtani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And there are other places in Psalms where, where the psalmist yells at God. So, but not, but not in the prayers. You, if you find, find, you look through them, you won't find prayers that knowingly and clearly challenge God. They're for praising. You can supplicate God and say, God, I'm suffering. Help me. You can say, you can do that. Yes. But you don't say, God, why am I suffering? What are you doing to me? Help. You know, that's a psalm. That's not, not the prayers. So the rabbis were very sensitive about that. Okay. You can say this is sort of, you know, it's not, it's not what you call objective science where you're, you feel obligated, you know, to, uh, make sure that you people understand that there's another side to these things. Marlise, raised your hand. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. I was, well, I just had the thought that if the prayers are replacing the service at the temple, um, you know, if that's, there's a parallel there because all of that would service at the temple would be sacrifice and which is, you're doing something for God and, and worshiping. Yes, exactly. Yes, in that regard, that's correct. There's no sacrifice of yelling at God. <laughs> There's something. God is, God is scary enough without us attacking God. What? Say again. God is scary enough without us attacking God to His face. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So this is that that you know it's amazing. You know the the that, that that's there. Um, but it's, it's sort of, it's, they're trying to be, um, helpful in consideration of the worshiper while at the same time not denying the intent of Isaiah's statement. Cause you say creating everything, you're validating Isaiah's statement, but you're just softening it, making it more comfortable to hear. Okay, so it, it's, I think it, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant hop, you know. It's a brilliant, uh, and then you have, I'm not going to deal with them, but you have these two other paragraphs that you say on, um, on the high holidays one for Yom Kippur and then, uh, one for Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, there's an extra bit added in the one for Yom Kippur. Why is it added in there? Why is it necessary? Oh, very simple. Because of the gates being opened? The gates of compassion. Our job job on Yom Kippur is to remind God, who is now judging us. I mean, we're at the final stages of judgment. Think of the mythology of its thing here, right? I mean, they, 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 they don't have the notion that God is writing it on Yom Kippur. Because you can't write on Yom Kippur, right? So it was written, but the question is, is it sealed? And the sealing of the book won't take place till after the holiday, right after Yom Kippur. Well, actually, some people say it's not till the end of Sukkot. Well, I know, 
Yeah, but I'm thinking in terms of the seven days of pen, ten days of penitence, right? Because they they do have a an aura of their own that is not continued into Sukkot. Then you say Ladavid the Psalm, but the but the basic structure of the prayers uh, and the the intent of the holiday. You stop saying Hamelech Hakadosh, right? And you you don't add other lines uh, for those days. Anyhow, uh, yeah. So that that's the reason we remind Dafka on that day. Hey, compassion, God, compassion, compassion. That I mean, the re, that's why do you think we say um, the uh, martyrology? Why do we have a martyrology on Yom Kippur, where we read about the death of the ten martyrs at the hands of the Romans? And we have added on since then, Holocaust and all kinds of other things. But why is it there? Have you thought about, ever think about that? Is it there to remind God of all of our devotion to God, of, of the Jewish people over the past? Yeah. These, it's almost like saying these were the sacrifices. We don't, we know we're opposed to human sacrifice, but the fact is going back to the time of the Crusades already. There are state, there are poems and there are things that were written in the aftermath of the first crusade in Germany and in Austria, where the martyrs of the first crusade were considered to be almost like sacrifices, atoning for sin. Okay. Atoning for sin. And they had what sin? Well, they said the sin of the golden calf. I, I, am I, have you ever heard this before? There are medieval sources that will teach us that I, th- no, I think it's even, yeah, they're, I'm thinking of the medieval ones. I'm trying to think if they're earlier in rabbinic times, whatever. No, the whole point was God was wanted to destroy what happened after the golden calf. What's God's first impulse? Destroy the people. And Moses begs for forgiveness. Right. No, it doesn't make for forgiveness. He well, he God. God not to do it. Right. He challenges God. Yeah. He said, you can't do it for two reasons, he says. What are the nations going to say about this, about you? Take him out of Egypt just to kill him? What kind of a God is that? And second of all, he says, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they drew, that there's, this is an eternal covenant. You can't kill. What kind of a God are you that goes against your own promise. And God says, you're right. Okay. So, so I guess our tradition of arguing with God is very old. Yes. But you still have a problem. They sinned. So does their sin go unpunished? Right? The wandering in the 40 years. Why did they wander in the 40 years? Because of the golden calf? Partly. Why? Spies, wasn't it? Spies. It was the spies. Because they came back and they told lies, well, no, they did their interpretation of what they saw, and the people believed, and they denied God had the power, right? Most of the other complaining was about Moses, or to Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt? This one was aimed directly at God, and God's, and he wanted to destroy him again, and Moses argues the same sort of way, you know, a little bit different this time. But, but the point is that um, the golden calf was never atoned for. The spies they were because these gener- this generation died out. They lived a natural life. 
but they died out in the wilderness and their punishment was they couldn't go into the land. So there was a punishment. What was the punishment for the golden calf? 3,000 people died. So what was it? So the rat, so sources, you know, generations later came up with the idea that God chose generations of righteous people. And those generations, people who could bear the, the, the suffering of martyrdom and not deny God died. They were atonement, collective atonement for the collective sin of the golden calf. And over the generations, these things kept popping up. That was one theory. It didn't work so well. It didn't work so well, but it was floating around. And I think the association of the 10 martyrs on Yom Kippur was just that. These people died because of their faith in God. Not So it wasn't quite the same. But, you know, keep this in mind and may it be a kind of a spiritual kapara for us. We are the, we are the, we are the descendants. We came from these same people. So keep that in mind. It's the same thing as Zoher Habrit. Remember the covenant that's on, on, you know, that's all throughout the high holidays, right? You got to remember God, who we are, and you got to please be compassionate. That's the point. Be compassionate and be forgiving. Anita. When you say it didn't work, could you clarify what you mean by that? Because we retain it in the tradition. Or do you mean that it wasn't something that resonated with the populace, with the general, you know, public, meaning Jews, average Jews? Yeah, I will give you an example. Okay, absolutely. Um, Rashi's commentary on Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God. Okay. So he says that suffering servant of God is actually the righteous among the Jews who died, get this one, for the sins of humankind, not just for the Jews, died for the sins of humanity. Okay. Doesn't that sound like another religion? Yes, it does. I have wrote a paper on that. And my suggestion was, it was, it was an adaptation. It was sort of turning the notion of what Jesus represented around, saying, no, it's us. And subsequent generations, subsequent generations picked up on that. And it became the most dominant interpretation of that chapter in Isaiah, that the Jews died to atone for sins of others. And that helped them better, more than the golden calf thing. That's my point. But, but you're saying, I'm sorry, you're saying they atoned for the sins of others, whereas supposedly Jesus died to allow any sins ever, including not following the laws of the first five of our five books of Moses to even have any need for them. No, right. Jesus died for all sins that any people create, whereas... Yeah, right. But, so the rabbis, and they know the Jews are not saying that. Yeah. They couldn't. But the, but the point is, and, and God would not expect the nations of the world to be observers of Torah. 
but they had their own covenant, the Noahide covenant, and they violated that. Say would these peoples would say that's not mentioned in the context of this, but it was just a general principle, right? And so I, my point is, the reason why that kept resonating down through the generations was because this notion of the golden calf just didn't resonate. It, 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 that's why I say I don't think it was successful. And you don't hear it often. The truth is, it's mentioned a few times, but relative to this other thing. And I mean, I, I read dozens of commentators on that. And it's uh, down into the 19, I don't know, 17th, 18th century already. They're still referring to that. Some people today still do. So, Anita, that's uh, that's why I said what I said. Okay. So we still have a little bit of time. All right. Okay, so now we uh, skip page 71 because 72, because that's weekday. We're going to come back to that later. And now we turn to page 73. And this is, this is for Shabbat, right? This is, this is for Shabbat. Now, this is only said for if Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat or Yom Kippur falls on Shabbat, we say this. If it falls on a weekday, we don't say this. So this is extra. And you look, look at 72. Okay. Compare the amount of text on 72 with the amount of text on 73. Okay. You can see there's a massive difference in the size. How about now just look at the layout. Okay. And in fact, 72, 73 continues on to 74. So the Shabbat edition is huge compared to the weekday edition. And this shows you once again what we were talking about earlier of the importance of Shabbat. Okay. That's what this is all about. And again, look at the, just look at the, the layout. Okay. All right. The bottom two paragraphs are clearly, this is a, a, a that's a standalone poem. But you will see how much of that text has poetic elements in it. You see, for example, look at the top of the page. Hakol, 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 five times. All, everything, all people, all praise God, all, 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 all. Okay. And then you have, um, here, uh, just a second. Here, in the English translation, you you um, you raise the gates of the east each day, uh, right? Breaking through the openings of the sky, so bringing forth the sun from its place and the moon from where it sits, illuminating the world with and all its inhabitants, whom He created with mercy. And here, if you look at the Hebrew, though. Well, it's, it's the, the, those two, but the two segments, you hear the ending? Ma and ta. And it's three words, three words. You remove, you bring the sun out from its place and you take out, bring out the moon from the place 
of its residence, where it sits. That's a mini poem, one line poem. But then it, the poetry sort of fades. But then you have at the bottom here, um, Adon Uzenu Tsur Mizgavenu Magen Yishenu Mizgav Ba'adenu. Four words. You hear the new, 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 new? Two words, two words, two words, two words. That's definitely a mini poem. And then this whole passage, Enker Kecha. You listen carefully. Enker Kecha ve'en zulatecha efes biltecha umidome lach. And that, okay. So there you have the layout with a bunch of chaz at the end. Then, and then it starts over again. Enker Kecha. First word of the first phrase, the first sex segment of that, that line. Okay, there's nothing like you, God, in this world. And nothing except you, our king for eternity, for eternal life. Nothing without you, our redeemer in the messianic age. And nothing compares to you, our, our redeemer at the time of the resurrection of the dead. That's a poetic structure. Yeah, Paula. I, um, did this liturgy change at all? For Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it, it's still the same. Stays the same language as right as Shabbat. Yes, yes. In, okay. Exactly, and that says something, doesn't it, about the significance of Shabbat? It carries its its own gravitas with it. Mm-hmm. Exactly the point. Okay, so these are the, the, this is these hidden pearls within here. You know the sounds. Ha, 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 ha. In fact, if you look the, it's, it's really in the, the, if you look at the Hebrew, I mean, I know you don't all understand it, but if you can just read in those six lines, the long, the, the final chaf, each one, right? Erkecha, biltecha, keerkecha, zulatcha, biltecha, lecha, right? So it's, it's totally poetic. And again, it, it's, it, 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 you know, these are things that they're easy to remember also. Remember, because the kinds of structure, think about music, right? You can, you can, um, remember things easily with music because it provides you with rhythms, sounds. So it's a, like a, it's a multimedia, uh, ex- experience for your brain rather than just words. And, and you know that, as you know, people who have uh, speech difficulty, you have a person who can be, who stammers horribly, can sing songs beautifully. And the stammering just completely goes away because the music helps structure it for them and they can do that. And it's the same thing with memorizing. Because remember a lot of this stuff who had Sidorin when these were written. So the fact that they were put in poetic form probably helped people. And we don't know how they were sung. You know, were they songs? Don't know. Possibly. It makes sense. And we have special melody. This whole thing, that whole thing, that leads into the poem, has its own melody. Okay? And that's because it's set aside. So fascinating stuff. All right? But now... um, Phrases, though, that being built into here, are terms we've heard before, these tropes of words. Hamelach, uh, hamaromam, levado, me'az. 
the king who was elevated all by himself from antiquity, from all, from them, from way back, right? Praised and glorified and elevated, exalted from the days of old. Okay. Elohei Olam, eternal God. With your great compassion, have compassion upon us. Okay, and that's not for that's not for the high holidays. That's on Shabbos. Okay, so then these themes just are recurring and recurring and recurring. Okay, we're going to stop here. And next time what we're going to do, we're going to look quickly at the poem. I mean, the El Adon is an alphabetic acrostic. Okay, it's the bottom two paragraphs on 73. And it continues on page 74. Okay. So if you can't get to have a chance, look through that and you will see. Uh, I mean, again, you, you can just look at the Hebrew and you'll see it follows the alphabet. Okay. That's a sign. It's a poem. It's a sign that people wanted you to remember this. And so that's, that's something very significant. But again, just to summarize, the power of Shabbat is demonstrated by the presence of these prayers, okay? And that leads to what Saul White told Bert, that Shabbos is the most important day of the year. Oh, Barbara. Oh, and Bob was Barbara, sorry. Bert, Barbara. Just out of curiosity, have there been any prayers that have been incorporated into the prayer book in the last one to 200 years? Or are they all centuries old? Uh, well, I can think of one that was incorporated within the last few years, the Al-Hadisim prayer at Yisrael, for the creator of the state of Israel. Okay. And um, there are some prayers that were created for the Holocaust, but they're not universally used. Well, both the, there are other prayer books, like the Reform Movement and the Reconstructionist Movement, and other people have made prayer books. Oh, but wait a minute. Even here, though, if you look, some of the, the Amidas have alternate versions, and there are passages in the Amidas that we have in this prayer book, where you find the second uh, page two, uh, you know, with an alternative. Well, I'm not talking oh, about here. There, there are. Yes. I'm not at, I'm not talking about adding women like the mothers. No, no, no. I'm talking about a prayer okay. that people felt there were elements in it that were not as widely accepted today or co- people were not as comfortable with. I mean, a lot of the stuff, for example, you'll find in the prayer book small segments that say some synagogues don't say these things. Yeah. Because there's different, within the conservative movement, you know, there's different, what shall we say, channels through which conservative Judaism flows. And so they're trying to be as inclusive as possible. Okay. I mean, it's like having, you know, the two columns for the Imahot, right? For the matriarch. Right, 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 right. Taibel, final comment. Um, It's not text, but if... One looks at the way some of the Nusach has changed and how pervasive it gets. Like supposedly even yeah. Debbie, some Debbie pre, some Debbie Friedman compositions have made it into Orthodox synagogues. Really? And some of it gets treated as if it's from, from Sinai. I mean, but if you look at, um, I mean, even within the conservative movement, there, 
I don't know. I just think that shows more fluidity, but it's also very interesting about how people think it's been there maybe for many more generations when tunes change. You're right. Absolutely. Yes. I asked a, a cantor friend of mine about the Shema, you know, Shema Yisrael, how old that was. And he looked it up, and it's like early 19th century. We tend to think that was set on Sinai. <laughs> Same thing. I, mean, I, I guess I said we, do, we don't really know the melodies they were using in the Middle Ages and before yeah, that, do we? Right. Well, we don't know exactly. And it was the cantors. Yeah. Paula, uh, yes. Oh, can you hear me? Oh, how far back do does... Most of, most of the normative um, the melodies? Yes, go. Oh, well, the Chazanut began in the 14th century <clears throat> in different ways. <clears throat> I know Jeremy Lipton, remember our Chazan? Uh-huh. <clears throat> we used to sing, the choir used to sing uh, Rossi music from uh, Renaissance Italy, 16th century. Mm-hmm. And it, had, it used the melodies of that age. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, in Jewish history, that's modern, like yesterday. Modern Chazanut, uh, yeah, modern, you know, developed in the 18th, 19th centuries, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. some of that stuff is is old. The Ein Kelohenu that we, you know, the standard ink, Ein da 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 a cantor, you know, was teaching us when I was a kid, and uh, he said it was came out of Prussia, not Russia, German, you know, Prussia. So yeah, that's what that was. Um, I don't know the the melody for Yigdal, da 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 da, right? Um, it's a it's it's an Austrian melody from I don't know when. Okay. I mean, you know, the Mal, Smetna, the Maldau, and Hatikva, right? But you think, da 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 right? Okay. Yigdal Elohim Chai Ve'yishtahabach. So Yigdal is the same mode as Okay, all of these are modes of this old Austrian folk melody. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was influenced by non-Jewish music. I remember, sorry, I were running a little late, but one final point, this might interest you. Years ago, I remember I was driving along, I was driving down Burton Way, okay? I, I was driving down Burton Way, uh, heading toward San Vicente, you know how it transfers over at La Siena, that area, right? Anyway, so I was coming down Burton Way, and I was listening to this music. I was thinking, oh, that's Zionist. That's Hapilu. That's Zionist. They're singing, they're playing Zionist melodies. Why are they doing that? Suddenly Zionist melodies. And then it was over said, you've been listening to Russian folk melodies. From the 19th century. (laughs) So there you go. All of the kibbutz music that we used to hear, right, from the the days of the early 20th century, you know, it's all Russian.
<laughs> what else is new? Okay. Lila Tov, see you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.